If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to meet me in Mark chapter 10. We'll start in verse 17 today. Um, if you didn't bring one, you'll be able to follow on the screen. We put those up for in case you didn't bring that today. But um, in April of 2019, um, Avengers Endgame uh, became the highest grossing movie of all time. Um, you probably noticed today that um, anytime there's a Marvel movie that's being released, you have grown men that will rush to the theater um, and they'll literally stiff arm 10-year-old boys to go see uh, Iron Man, uh, to see uh, Avengers, to see the 18th Spider-Man, right? We're going, we love to do those things. Why? Is that? Why do we do that? I think the reason is there's this Marvel meta narrative that's hidden there. 21 movies in the Marvel meta narrative that all tell one story good versus evil. And I think that's in our core. We love the story of those who fight for good things, right? We, we're, we're moved by that. And that's why we are doing this series called Fight, uh, because we want you uh, as Christians and me along with you to really get off of the sidelines of Christianity, to kind of disengage from the arena culture of watching Christianity happen, uh, to put the popcorn down and actually engage in the fight in this Christian war that we are living in. So we, we talked about what that is because everything in our life that is good, it must be fought for. We have to fight. Things won't naturally happen in our life unless we fight. If we want to have a good marriage, we must fight. If we want to overcome the addiction of porn and pills and the addiction of people's approval, we will have to fight. If we want to have joy, peace, we've got to fight. If we want to fight uh, sin's destruction in our lives, we are going to have to fight. Last week, we kicked off this series that we're doing uh, by telling you that unless the fight for the gospel in your own heart, you and I will be ill-equipped warriors in God's army. We'll be hopeless and helpless because our hearts are fickle and they're adulterous. Right? That's what our hearts are like. But unless the gospel rules in our own hearts, we won't be able to engage the fight in all these other places, the home, the neighbors, and the nations. Right? So the gospel must reign supreme. Now that we're trained up, we have the gospel, today we're going to call you to fight for the gospel in your home. Specifically today, primarily from the lens of parenting. All right, that if we are going to want these kids, these little ones here that you brought today, all of your kids to have this knowledge of who God is and that they would have zealous hands and feet and hearts for the glory of God, it's going to be a fight. Uh, now, if you're here, and I've already said the word parenting, and you're single, uh, single or no kids, listen, you might have this tendency right now to kind of check out and say, well, that's not really my season of life. Please don't do that. Come with us today for a couple of reasons. You might one day have children by the grace of God. So you need to get ready now. Don't figure it out on the fly. Learn today. Uh, the second thing is this, that we are the household of God here, right? We're the household of faith is what Paul calls us. And there are so many children throughout our church with either single moms or single dads or ill-equipped parents who need us to come alongside of them to help shape and mold them to fight in the home. 
All right, so if you are, some of you are actually already doing that. You do kids ministry, you do preschool, you're doing it on Wednesday nights with students, you're helping those people uh, come with us. And when I use the language of parenting today, put on your leader hat for just a moment and just kind of go with me as you help shape the next generation. Uh, Then there's another couple of groups. These are actually the parents in the room. These are the ones with gray hair and the ones that are pulling out their hair. Uh, The gray hair, you are here and you're like, done it, been there, I'm out. I've already raised my kids. I've kind of graduated beyond that. Um, Listen, I would ask you uh, to not coast into the back end of your life, that you would take seriously the tightest two responsibilities to go grab a young parent in the church and say, hey, these are the things that I did. Don't do these things. These are the things that I did that were very good. I want to give them and impart them upon you. All right? So we have responsibilities to engage. And as I said, then we have the parents that are pulling out their hair right now. You are, uh, these little blessings are just wearing you down. I pray today, and I have been praying that this would be a, a passage and then also a sermon that would mark your life and would breathe some encouragement into you as we talk about parenting today. So uh, we're in this fight. As I said, let's go. And if you, uh, I, I do wanna let you know this, as I stand in the pulpit and preach to you today, Um, I'm not preaching from a place of perfection, but probably a lot more weakness than I am in in strength. I spent the 20-something years of me being a parent, um, half of those as not a follower of Christ, and the back half as being a follower of Christ. My my kids were like watching this thing happen. They're like, what the heck's happened to mom and dad? We're freaking out. Uh, There's a lot of parent fails in my history, uh, a lot of sinfulness in my life, a lot of prioritizing certain things over Jesus, a lot of performance-based love that I gave to my kids. I have gone to them and I've asked for forgiveness for them. And then the gospel radically shifted how I parent. I'm on the other side of that now. Not done, not graduated, uh, but by the grace of God, I'm learning how to be a better parent today. So I fight alongside of you, all right? We're in this fight together. So I think that most parents... And most people, pretty much everybody in the degree, would understand the reason to fight, the need to fight for our kids. And, and I think most parents are fighting for their kids in the home. I think the problem comes with what we're fighting for. The wrong things, I think that's what's keeping us from being the parents that God has called us to. So I want to see about fighting for the right things today. And how do we know what to fight for? Uh, Well, we don't go to Dr. Phil. We go to Dr. Jesus. So we're going to look at Mark 10, 17 through 22, the gospel of Mark. This is known as the rich young ruler, often taught from the lens of the caution of the love of money, but it has great parenting, teaching, and implications in our life today. And that's what we'll preach from that lens. Let's look at this together. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come, 
follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's pray. Father, I think it's very appropriate today that we see this story over 2,000 years ago, this true story, that we, in fact, might learn a lot from this man who has come to you with great urgency, with great intensity. He has gotten into the right posture of kneeling before you. He's come to the right person in Jesus. And he has asked the right question. I can't think of a better place for our parents to be in this morning in our task to train up our children to know you. We have a great need, a great urgency. I pray that our posture is very humble. We come to Jesus to hear what he has to say. But I pray our our difference in response from this man today, I pray that we would actually hear your words, heed your words, and follow you. Teach us through your word. God, I'm thankful that the Bible isn't chained to a pulpit anymore and that it is accessed by every single one of us and understood by those who you give ears to hear. Do that today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in context here, let me tell you what's happening. Jesus has been marking, uh, marching towards Jerusalem because he has this divine appointment uh, with the cross. And he's teaching, walking, his disciples teaching them about the kingdom of God. They're these young students, and they're a little bit confused because what he's just told them is that the kingdom of God, the ones that get into the kingdom of God, have to get in with childlike faith. That they actually bring nothing to the kingdom of God. They come empty-handed, they have nothing to offer, and that all people, that's how they receive Jesus, with a childlike faith, with nothing to offer, all right? That's the gospel. Well, now here he's about to meet, which is a man who's the exact opposite of the one who's the child. He has much to offer. He is rich, he is successful, he is wealthy, uh, he has much to offer. He seems like a great candidate for the kingdom of God. He has a universal passport that gets him in everywhere. Let's see if it gets him into the kingdom of God, right? So what is it about this man that we learn here as we begin? Um, The young man runs up to Jesus. As I said, he runs to Jesus. He got the right person. And he asks this question, this burning question, what must I do to have eternal life? Great question. But he leaves. He ends up walking away at the very end of the story, forfeiting the kingdom of God, and he is very disheartened and saddened. Why? Well, let's look who this young man is first. All right? Uh, Who is this person that's coming to Jesus, uh, we know that this story is told in the three synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And because of all three of those accounts, we get an actual description of who this man is. In verse 22, we're told that he has a lot of possessions, right? Uh, The gospel of Luke tells us that he was rich and that he was a ruler, all right? The, The gospel of Matthew tells us that he was young Hence, the rich young ruler, right? So by all standards of today, American standards of what we consider our kids to be successful, he's nailing it. 
He's the all-American kid, grown up, wealthy, successful. He's good. He's moral. He's knocking it out of the park, right? Let's start to unpack some of these things um, of what we see according to this as a measure of success. First, he's rich, as I said. We see that in verse 22. We see that also in Luke 18, 22. Most parents want their kids to grow up and be successful, make pay, get good jobs, right? We want them to do that. That's why I had four kids. Maybe one of them will actually make enough money to take care of me. We want that, right? Here's the second thing that we see. He's successful. He is a successful man. Luke 18, 28 says that he was a ruler. As I said, he has a significant amount of power and authority over people. He's the CEO. He has a corner office. He doesn't work for the man. He is the man. He is very popular, very well-known. He has infinitely more followers and likes than you do, right? He's nailing it at success. Here's the third marker. He's good and he's moral. Jesus says, man, he lists out all these things. You got to do this. You got to do this. Done it. He's nailing it. He's a good moral kid, young man grown up. He's the best kid in youth group. He's answering all the questions. He doesn't vape. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't date girls that do. He keeps his pants up. He doesn't have a face tat. He's nailing it. He says his yes ma'ams and his no sirs make straight A's. This is a good moral kid. He's the kid that we want our kids to be, right? Or is he? He's graduated from Vandy with honors. Driving a BMW Roadster, stays a virgin till his wedding night. He is the success story for many people's idea of kid. So what in the world is this man asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's important to understand here is what he's asking. He's not asking uh, what's going to happen to me after I die. That's not what eternal life is. Eternal life is the here and it's the now. It is both quantitative and qualitative. It's, it's he wants God now. He wants life now. He can't find it because his money, his riches, his possessions, his success, and his authority over other people has not satisfied his very soul. His parents were probably confused, wouldn't you think? Haven't we done our job as parents? We've set you up for success. You're nailing this. What have we done? Why are you asking the question where life is? You have the life, right? They could have possibly taken their kid um, in modern day culture, taken him across the talk show circuit of Dr. Phil, Oprah, all that stuff. This is what we did. Look at us. We've created a great kid. But that's not what's happened. Their child, their young man grown up, has walked away from the kingdom of God, dejected, saddened, with a hole in his heart because all of those things could not sustain and fulfill the longing of his heart. His parents had failed. So what's the lesson? What's the lesson that we learn as parents in this story? 
Get this. You're going to like this. It's genius. The first lesson, don't raise rich young rulers. Pretty simple, right? Let's fight the temptation. Me and you as parents have to fight the temptation to raise rich young rulers. How do we know if we're doing this or not? And really remembering here, this temptation is to fight against the goal of our parenting to make our, make our kids rich, successful, moral kids. That's the fight. Now, I think most parents probably fall into the temptation of one of those three, if not all three. Let us walk through some of those. Some of you are more bent and have to fight against the temptation for wanting your kids to be wealthy and rich. The story here that we learn is that if you teach your kids to love possessions more than Jesus, they will not get into the kingdom of God. The story doesn't say that you can't have possessions. And this is really not about the love of money because money without money by itself is really nothing. It's what money can do, right? It buys you possessions. If money was bad, Jesus would have said, take all your money and go burn it. But he didn't do that. He said, go give it to the poor. So having money, having possessions is not a bad thing. So why did it go so wrong for this guy? It's because he had a love affair with money and possessions and it was a greater love than Jesus And because that was his love, he was miserable and walked away saddened at the very end. If you teach your kids that getting and accumulating as much stuff as they possibly can as their satisfaction, instead of finding their satisfaction in God, you and I fail as parents. How do you know if you're raising a kid a child will fall in love with your stuff right now. How do you know that you might be raising a rich young ruler? The first thing is, what are you modeling in your own home as a parent? In your home, do you model for them that you get more jacked up and excited and happy in the stuff that you have versus Jesus? You get more passion and vitality and and satisfaction out of your new boat, your camper, your house, your car, your clothes, and your cash. You get all jacked up about those things and fire, but not about Jesus. Are you modeling for your children that that's where you find your satisfaction? That's one way that you could be raising up rich young rulers because they're watching everything. They're watching, they're absorbing like sponges. Or you might be sitting there saying, I don't have all that stuff. How about this? Are you coveting stuff in front of your kids? Oh, if I could just have that. If I could just get this and this and this and this, then I would be satisfied. If that's what you're doing, you're also training up a rich young ruler to show them that satisfaction is only found in stuff. Well, how does that redirect onto our parenting? How do you you know if you might be training up a rich young ruler as your child? Well, do you spoil your children? Do you give them every toy they want? Do you 
give them every game that they want, every shoe, clothing, device, gaming system? Do you just feed into that idea that this is what will make you happy? Listen, if you start that when they're little beady and you say, oh, I just love them so much. They're so cute. I just can't help buying everything from them. And grandparents fall into this too, by the way. It's just, I want to give them stuff and they're so lovely. Listen, if that's what you do, here's what's going to happen. You're training up a viper in a diaper. And that little child, if you just let it keep growing up and you ignore it, they'll turn into a teenager and then you'll be mad at them because they are who you taught them to be. We don't spoil our kids. You teach them their treasure and their satisfaction is in God and not in stuff. Be careful about raising rich young rulers who love possessions more than God. Second thing here, we have to caution and fight the temptation to raise good moral kids. And some of you are like, what? Don't we want our kids to be good and moral? Maybe, maybe not. I think, uh, I think most parents want to do this. As I said, we want our kids to behave properly. We want them to use their devices with, uh, with, with all of these safeguards on them. We don't want them to get tattoos. We want them to make great grades. We want them to avoid sexual immorality. Uh, we, we, don't, we want them to do all of those things. We want good, moral kids, right? But if that is our primary goal as parents, we're still training up rich, young rulers. Those aren't bad things, hear me. They're just not ultimate things. If your home and your structure is so set up on behavior modification and creating good moral kids, that is no better than a pharisaical approach to parenting. Setting up rules and regulations more than relationship with Jesus. Fear-based parenting instead of faith-based parenting. Surely setting up all of those barriers, man, surely that will help in the short term. And yes, it will. But it will be an impotent form of parenting in the long run, securing your children when they leave your house when they're 19 or 20, right? This is why when kids, so many kids today, when they bail and they go to college, mom and dad aren't around. All these rules and expectations and laws and all these, they're gone. I'm going off the chain, right? It's because they grew up in a culture and a home that was a lot more about obedience, being good, and being moral. And didn't Jesus just say in verse 18 that good kids don't get into the kingdom of God? He did say that. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good, including our kids. No one is good. Now, despite the carnage of sin's destruction on our world in the 21st century, despite all the chaos that you see every day, people are still under the false sense that, that people are generally good people, right? Don't we, don't we talk like that? Oh, so-and-so, they're a good person, uh, they're good. Yeah, they're pretty good. Listen, according to Jesus, no one is good. Not a single person. 
And you know why people think they're good? Because they've never tried to be perfect. That's why. You try to go the rest of the day without, without having one impure thought of jealousy, rage, or lust. Try to do that for a day. You'll see how good you really are. So if good people don't get in, who gets in the kingdom of God? Perfect people. Only perfect people get into the kingdom of God. Those who absolutely are blameless before the law. They've never done anything wrong. And you might be saying, how in the world can this happen? How can I be perfect? No one's perfect. Absolutely, there was one perfect. His name was Jesus. And for all of those who put their trust in Jesus Christ's perfection, that perfection is then imputed to you and credited to your account. So now I am perfect before the eyes of God. God does not grade on a curve. There is no good. There's no average. There's perfection and fail, pass or fail. Those who trust in Christ, perfect, passing into the kingdom of God. Those who reject Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life will fail. We have got to be careful about training up children who are good and moral like the rich young ruler. Remember, he's that kid. Don't forget, he's that kid. He's going to youth group. He's answering all the questions. He is that kid. He's knocking it out. He's there every week, but yet he, he's dejected and he's saddened because he doesn't inherit the kingdom of God. The last piece here is this. We have to fight the temptation of raising, as our primary goal of parenting, of raising successful kids. He's successful. Like I said, we've listed his resume. I think for most of our parents... And wanting our kids to be successful is not a wrong thing here. I want you to hear me say, but it cannot be our primary goal as parents. I think most parents fall into kind of two camps when it comes to wanting our kids to be successful. Academic and athletic. And I'll, I'll unpack those just a bit. We see parents going to extreme lengths of time and energy and money and going into debt to make sure that their child gets the best education, all the tutors that they absolutely need to surround them, to have great ACT scores and preparations. They'll go to great lengths to make sure their kid is successful academically. They'll put pressures on their kids to get in all AP classes you have to go here. You got to get the scholarship. You, you got to graduate first in your class. And they put all these pressures on their kids as if that was the primary means of parenting. I'm not telling you to not encourage your kids to use their God-given brains. That's not what I'm doing. I'm saying, is that your primary thing that you do in the house to make sure that your kid succeeds academically? Listen. I'm way more concerned with my children entering the kingdom of God than entering a college. I'm way more concerned about their walk with Jesus than I am their ACT score. And if you believe that's not true, you've bought the lie. Because this kid's got it all and he doesn't get in. 
The second piece I think we, we try to put ourselves into with our kids is we want them to succeed athletically. And athletically, listen, let me put a, a, a group of people in there. Oftentimes we think athletic, we think football, baseball, whatever. I'm talking band, I'm talking cheer, I'm talking dance, gymnastics, baseball, football, soccer. You plug it all in there. We want our kids to succeed, to go D1. Uh, we measure them by their ships, their scholarships, and their championships. We put so much pressure on them, buying all the lessons, the weekends, the laboring. We fight, but we're fighting for the wrong things. Now, I know that guy because that was me. Y'all have heard me say those things so many times. Because we want our kids to be successful. Be careful about raising successful, rich, young rulers in your house. Now, I think what we do, as I said, a lot of those things are not wrong. I'm not the anti-success, anti-sports, anti-make money for all. I'm not anti those things, but I'm saying, is that your primary goal of parenting? I think we walk through there, and because we are, man, we're sinful people. We all are, and I'm on the hook here too, that we often try to justify our behaviors. We say, I love my kids. And we do all of those things that we just listed. That, that's where we put the bulk of our fight and all those things. But then we say when someone asks us, no, 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 that's not my goal of parenting. My goal of parenting is Jesus. Like we've been churched enough that we know that we just say Jesus to any question and we get it right. You know what I mean? Like, of course that's not my goal. Here's a good way to measure if that actually is your primary goal of parenting. In your house, what do you talk about more? Do you talk more about behaviors, their do's, their don'ts, getting a job, succeeding athletically, academically, their scores on their test? If that's the things you talk about in your house the most, you are placating into raising rich young rulers. I think another way that we, uh, we try to justify those things that I just kind of mentioned is we say, well, at least I go to church. Uh, at least me and my kids are in church. You know, Susie and those, man, those people, they ain't going to church. I'm in church, right? And we get this idea that thinking that we come to church, we maybe send our kids down the hallway a couple times a week or drop them off on Wednesday night, that that actually justifies all of those other wrongs that we do as parents. And that's simply not true. That's the same concept of if I go and eat uh, number one combos for McDonald's all week long, and I'm upsizing that thing. But on Friday, I go grab a salad from Publix. And I tell you that I'm healthy, right? It's crazy. You'd say, no way. If we are people that say, well, I come to church two hours a week. Surely that makes me healthy. We're greatly mistaken. There's 168 hours in a week. You're here maybe two hours. It's what you're doing the 166 hours outside of these walls. That's the measure of if we're raising rich young rulers or are not. Now, let me ask a difficult question. Parents, and I'm going to put leaders in here too. As I said, I'm trying to pull you in. Would you be okay if your child turned out to be the exact opposite as the rich young ruler?
Would you be okay if your child was either impoverished for the gospel, blue-collar worker, maybe working at Walmart, $9 an hour, unsuccessful, unpopular, not a lot of people like him? Would you be okay if they didn't get in everywhere, but they got into the kingdom of God? Would you be okay if they, instead of moving into the burbs when they get their family, but they, instead they moved into weary housing in Smyrna? Are you going to be cool with that? Are you going to be cool if they don't get the scholarship that you put so much time and energy and passion into, but yet they love Jesus? Is that enough for you? I pray that it is. I pray that if you're walking in any expectations of your children in those ways, that you would fight, you'd turn your fight upside down and fight for the gospel to rule and reign supreme in your home. Now we've learned about fighting the wrong things. Let's see how to fight for the right things, okay? Learn the dangers and all those things. What do we do as parents? What is our fight? Where do we fight? And here it is found in the second piece, and it's found in verse 22. The second thing is, is we must fight for our kids to know how much Jesus loves them. Look at verse 22 when Jesus looked at this man. He's rebellious. He's not getting in the kingdom of God. He has a love of money in his heart, doesn't he? And what is Jesus' response to him? He loved him. Now, how does this transform your parenting? How does this transform my parenting? You will never teach your children to run hard after Jesus by telling them all of the things they don't do. You understand? You don't run around and put the fear of hell in them and they better oh Jesus, obey Jesus they're go- or they're going to hell. That is a horrible way to evangelize and get your children to love Jesus. Don't ever do that. Don't ever scare people into following Jesus. How do I know that's true? What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians? His motivation for obedience. Because he was compelled by the love of Christ. Here's what I'm telling you. In your home, you have to fight to tell your children how much Jesus loves them because the love of Jesus precedes obedience. I'm going to say that again. Love precedes obedience. Let me show you this in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. The Israelites are getting ready to enter into the promised land and God wants them to obey all the laws. I want you to obey But before he gives them the laws to obey, listen to what he says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Love precedes obedience. That should radically shift and change your parenting. It did mine in a huge way. I was the obedience precedes love guy. That's the way I parented. If you were obeying, if you were performing for me, we were cool. But if you didn't, man, there's a love problem here, right? 
Here's what I wanted for my kids. I wanted them to obey me more than I wanted them to love me. And that's a horrible way to parent. Don't you want your kids to obey you because they love you? Of course you do. Of course you do. You want them to say, I love my parents so much that I want to obey them. Not because they're scared of them, right? That doesn't work long term, people. We know that. Love precedes obedience. And then, if you can get to drive that into your children, ultimately, you want them to obey because they love Christ and not because they see him as a dream crusher. You want obedience for your children, for my children, to be as easy as breathing. It's natural. It's not hard. I don't want to fight against what God's calling me to do. This is what compelled Paul How does that work out in your house? It allows for the gospel to shape how you parent your kids by how God responds to you. That's what a gospel-centered home looks like. So you look at your kids and you say, okay, before I do this, how does God respond to me? When I find my kids and they got, they're looking at porn, instead of you freaking out and saying, You're disgusting. Where did you get this? This will never enter into my home again. I can't believe you're doing this. You say, hey, what's going on? What's happening? What what are you looking for? Let me lovingly give you grace and patience. Let's fight this together. You see, that's what a gospel-centered home does. Because that's the response of God to me. He doesn't freak out on me. He doesn't go crazy and throw it all off in my face. He's with patience and loving kindness, gently grabbing me by my heart. So then I go and do that with my children. That's how I work those things out. This is what a gospel-shaped home looks like. Now let me land this because uh, the, the rich young ruler, once again, he'd done all the right things. He came to the right person, asked the right question, had the right posture, right urgency, But he walked away from Jesus at the very end, disheartened. Listen, some of you parents right now have kids who do not love Jesus. They've either walked away from the gospel or they don't love him right now. You have no more failed as a parent than Jesus did right here with the rich young ruler. Salvation for your children is not a work of the parent. It is the work of of God. You labor all of your days sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel of Jesus, but you trust that it is in the sovereign hand of God that he saves and you endure. What may seem impossible right now with your children, Jesus says at the end of this story, all things are possible with God. Be encouraged by that. Listen, you know, contrary to popular belief, this, this role of training up your children um, is your primary responsibility, not the church. And where that comes from is in an age of professionalism where we hire out uh, all the right people to help our kids, don't we? Susie wants to get a good ACT score. We get them a private tutor. 
Uh, Johnny wants to become the next all-star quarterback. What do we do? We get him lessons, training, weightlifting, personal trainer. We do all that thing. We go to all these ends to get our kids all these things by hiring out professionalism. My kid's messed up. He's got some issues going on. Let me hire a children's pastor or a youth pastor to clean him up. We think that is a professional's responsibility. And my case and my plea to you is that is not biblical. Yes, the church loves to come alongside and help you. But it is your job, my job as parents, to primarily do this in the home. How do we do that? Let me end with some final pieces here on how you might need to respond today. Uh, Where do you start? Parents, if you've fallen short and you're like, man, I've blown it. I've not done this right. I've done this. I've done. Listen, the first thing that you need to do is confess and repent to a loving father who's not looking for your excuses. You don't have to explain yourself. His grace is never ending. It's the first thing you might need to do today. And then you might need to turn to your spouse and even your kids and say, I'm sorry, I've blown it. I've gotten all these years wrong. And here's the beauty of the gospel. He makes all things new. He touches and it makes it all things new. So how do you practically begin to do that in your home? Well, we as a church, we manufacture. You see these on our LifePoint app, the My House worship guides, the responsive readings, the scripture, the read, pray, sing. We put things in your hand to help you uh, have a gospel-centered home. Don't walk around and give a bunch of advice and a bunch of counsel. Don't let that be uh, the source of your power. Run to the word. Let the scriptures guide you. You have a loving father who wants to give you the power of the Holy Spirit and a church to come and do that with you. That's where we start. You go to places in our, right out in the lobby, there's a place called Parent Resources. We want to put good gospel-centered resources in your hands so that your home begins to get saturated with the gospel. You just need to move. All right, let me pray for us and we'll continue to worship. Lord, I pray that uh, this story just really just penetrates uh, some hearts here today. God, I pray it brings encouragement to some that are faithfully doing this every day, that you would continue uh, to encourage them, that they would press on in their parenting and trusting you, uh, that you will save our children by your grace. Father, I pray that you might even bring a spirit of, of heavy, heavy conviction upon those who are doing it wrong, that you would show them there's a better way, there's a greater way, and that we as parents would not be deterrents for our kids to get into the kingdom of God, but we would be helpers. Teach us how to do it. Your word is a light to our paths, and your spirit is the one who empowers us to accomplish it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.